Welcome to Simmering Thoughts, the podcast where we serve up slow thinking on Christian life and theology. You've found us in the middle of our third season, a season where we are studying Christology in Scripture. Today, we'll be looking at Philippians with Dr. Herschel York from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. So, right now, grab your Bible, sit back, settle in, and enjoy Simmering Thoughts. Welcome back to Simmering Thoughts. My name is Ryan Akers, and I'm the host of the program. We are joined today by a very special guest. Dr. Herschel York is joining us, and I have a longtime acquaintance with Dr. York. It's been a little while since we've had an opportunity to spend any time with each other, and he probably didn't get to see me all that much back then, because when I was but a wee lad uh, in Lexington, Kentucky, I would visit my grandparents, and he was the pastor of their church, Ashland Avenue Baptist Church there in Lexington. And I have fond memories of going to that church in the summer and uh, being in, in the Sunday school and also being in the service and hearing you preach. And I, those are distinct things. I remember distinctly uh, being in the presence while you were, were preaching. Uh, there aren't a lot of my memories that are that specific where I can uh, picture the whole thing. But that's one that, that is definitely there. And I uh, want to give you an opportunity to, to introduce yourself a little bit further. Uh, with some things that you're involved in and what your ministries are. Okay, well, man, uh, I, I wear a lot of hats. I enjoy all of them. I uh, have been the pastor at Buck Run Baptist Church in Frankfort, Kentucky, uh, since 2003. Uh, I have also been the uh, Victor, and Lu- Victor and Louise Lester Professor of Preaching at Southern Seminary in Louisville since 1997. So uh, that's why I look so old. I've had those two full-time jobs for uh, a lot of years. And if that weren't enough, in 2018, I added the the uh, title of Dean of the School of Theology. So I still teach a full load. I pastor a, a growing church, and uh, I, I am also the Dean of the School of Theology. I'm husband to Tanya, dad to Michael and Seth, and Papa. To five wonderful grandchildren, so man, my my cup is full and overflowing, and and I love every one of those things. And I also want to mention that uh, you're the host of a podcast that has been very profitable for me to listen to, right? Uh, the Pastor Good. Well podcast. If you have not listened to that yet, I highly commend it to you. Uh, to go listen to that is a really good podcast where he is interviewing uh, folks that are in ministry and have been in ministry, and they share uh, perspectives with each other from years of experience that those of us who are entering ministry or anybody really along the way uh, can profit from. So I recommend that to you. Uh, I've listened to it several times. We binge listened uh, to the beginning of season two as we were on vacation this summer and uh, really enjoyed, especially the episode with Alistair Begg was one that uh, that was really neat yeah, to hear you he, two just, just have a conversation. He's one of my favorites. Yep. He's one of my, I, yeah, he's one of my favorites. One of my f- favorites to listen to as well. I would love to have a chance to meet him one of these days. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we are continuing our Philippians, or Philippians, our Christology series, and we are in Philippians. Uh, we're going to be in Philippians 2 today, and we're going to begin right at the beginning of the chapter and look at the first 11 verses, which is about a third 
of the chapter. And so I'll go ahead and read that. I'm in the CSB. Uh, so that is the translation I use on a daily basis. It's where I do my daily readings and uh, most of my study, but not all. And so here it is, Philippians 2. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come in as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And as we take these, we've been uh, kind of using the analogy of a jigsaw puzzle. And that uh, each passage adds a little bit to the picture of who is Christ. And so the first question is kind of uh, both sides of the same question. What are we adding to the puzzle by having this passage in Scripture? And, and what do we miss when we take it out? If this isn't here, what's missing in the picture of who is Christ? Well, that, that is a great way to look at it, a great question. And frankly, uh, there is a lot here that is so clear. It's more clearly stated, mm -hmm. I think, here than other places. Uh, the Christology here is a very high Christology, and it's really important because it's so early. Right. It totally undermines the liberal claims about, you know, a church developing a Christology and, and coming to see Jesus as Lord later. This this passage absolutely wipes that argument out because we we really do believe because of the poetic framework that you have beginning in verses 5 through verse 11 that uh, this is a, an early Christian hymn that they would have been familiar with. And Paul was was reciting to them something that they already knew that they, they would have been familiar with. And he's calling their attention to this hymn that they sang about Christ. And he's saying, see, this is this is what you know about Christ. And his ultimate point is that this is what should be true of you. Mm -hmm. You don't want to lose that. I always, when I stand in the pulpit at Buck Run, a lot of times I will, I'll say context is, and my whole congregation will holler back at me, everything. I've drummed <laughs> that into their heads. Yes. Uh, so the context here. You just sort of get the flow of what Paul's doing. You, you, you always, you just don't want to lift something out. You want to sort of see how it fits into his overall argument. Mm -hmm. So Paul is in prison, and uh, the uh, the church at Philippi has sent messengers to him to check on him, and basically they've asked, "How are you doing? What can we do for you?" And chapter one is Paul's answer, basically saying, "I'm okay." You know, verse 12, he says, the things that have happened to me have happened for the furtherance of the gospel. So, that, you know, my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the praetorium and in all other places. You know, I'm good. In verse 19, he reiterates that uh, when uh, he says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, 
this will turn out for my deliverance. He's not pleading with them to write letters to Caesar or anything to get him out. He's talking about the gospel and he's God has a purpose in this. So chapter one, Paul's going, I'm good. I don't need anything. In chapter two, with an incredible pastoral skill, he says, hey, wait a minute. If, if, if there is, and then you've got that four part, it's a conditional sentence in verse one, but it's a four part prodesis. The, the first part of the conditional sentence is called the, the prodesis. The second part is called the apodesis, the payoff. He's got a four-part prodesis. He says, hey, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort of love, any, any fellowship of the Spirit, any, uh, literally, he says, bowels and mercies, any compassion and mercy. In other words, he's not just asking if these things exist in the universe. He says, if you indeed have this for me, if you you want to help me, you want to do something good for me, make me happy. There's the and there's the main verb in verse two. Fulfill my joy, make me happy. Okay, now that sounds almost self-serving, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, you know, like if a pastor says to his congregation, "Your job is to make me happy," uh, but Paul is just simply using really a very wise pastoral skill in trading on that relation he's leveraging his relationship with them to get them to do the right thing which is to have unity in the church i mean this is philippians i think the theme of philippians is unity yep and so he begins this appeal by saying uh okay make me happy here's what you can do for me you can have unity in the church and uh and and so he lays out what that looks like he says, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being literally one souled, S-O-U-L-E-D, uh, and thinking the one thing, literally is what it says, thinking the one thing, and don't do anything from, uh, from conceit or vanity, but everything in humility of mind, count others more significant than yourself, and each one looking at your stuff, but caring more for the stuff of others. Now that's a tall order. And you'd be going, okay, how on earth, how can I, you know, Paul here doesn't say treat others as your equal. He says, treat others as your better. Right. Uh, you're right. And that, that's a tall order that that's beyond my human capacity. How can I do that? How can the church that is divided ever achieve that? Well, then comes verse five. And as further development of how to fulfill his joy and, and furthermore, how to do those tall orders that he just, he mandated, he says, okay, be minded like this, like have this mind among yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus, who, okay, now there's a relative pronoun. And then the rest of that passage all the way down to verse 11, hangs on that relative pronoun, who. And everything describes who Jesus is. And by telling us who Christ is, he's telling us how we can have that mind, how we can accomplish unity. You and I can never have unity by each of us thinking with our own thoughts and in our own perspectives. But when we have the mind of Christ in us, Okay, now we're thinking the same way. We're thinking, as he says, Tohen, the one thing. 
And as we think the one thing in Christ, we find this draws us together. We're going the same direction. We have the same perspective. Now we can have unity. And so he says, be minded like this. Let this mind be among you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, and then you have this incredible statement of the pre-mundane existence of Christ, that being in the form of God, he did not consider that equality with God a, and he uses this, this really neat Greek word, a harpagmon. Uh, now, that word uh, harpagmon, if you've ever read the, the Odyssey, now I'm a, I grew, I, uh, I trained in classical Greek before I ever went to seminary, and I had to read Homer. And if you've ever read the Odyssey, there's this scene where Odysseus uh, and his men are beset by the harpies, these creatures that are half bird and half woman, and they will swoop down. And what do they do? They grasp, they seize the sailors. Mm-hmm. And so that word, uh, harpazo, is the verb for to, to grasp or seize. Now, in Latin, the cognate verb is uh, rapturo, I think, and mm. Uh, that's where we get our word rap- raptors, right. well, uh, birds that seize are raptors. And, of course, what, did, what Paul describes in Greek as we'll be caught up together with him in the clouds. Yeah. That's the verb harpazo, but huh. in Latin it is raptoro, and where we get our word rapture. Yeah, it, it brings into so, my mind the, the idea of a harpoon as well. Right. You, you hear that root. So Jesus did not consider his rights of being equal with God as something to cling to, something to grasp and hold on to. Uh, and, uh, but, but he emptied himself. Now here is, this is a very well-known word. This Greek word, kenoo, is the verb, and it's called the kenosis. This is often referred to as the kenosis passage, which means uh, the emptying of Jesus. This is Jesus self-emptying. Now, the question comes of what did he empty himself? And through church history, there have been some people who have misinterpreted this passage and ended up with heretical views. And here's one of them, one of the possibilities. There are those who think he emptied himself of his divinity and that he became merely a man. Well, he did not become merely a man. He did become fully a man but he was, he was God in human flesh. So he emptied himself, not of a divinity, but of the prerogatives of divinity. So though he's still God and he has the ability to be omnipresent, for instance, he empties himself of that right uh, and not of the, the essence, but of the right. And he takes upon himself the constraint of human flesh he empties himself of the right to have the angels singing holy 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 uh in his presence all the time and you know he's born in bethlehem and placed in a manger and wrapped in swaddling clothes and to think that god wore diapers is uh, an amazing illustration of the kenosis of jesus the the self-emptying of jesus and this passage expresses that 
incredibly well and beautifully. Uh, and uh, how did he, you, you see in this passage, I think the important thing to notice is this incredible condescension that at every level, Jesus is descending further. So he is totally equal with God, but he doesn't grasp at that. He empties himself. And how does he do that? By taking upon the form of a servant. Now, who are the servants of God? Angels are servants of God. Angels are ministering, serving spirits. What did Jesus do? He became lower than the angels. So he wasn't merely a servant, but he was born in the likeness of men. So he becomes a human. He he condescends even further than the angels. And he and and then being found in this human form, he's not just he's not a great man, right? He's not a king, uh he's not a rich man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. I mean, he's he's an obedient servant, if you will. To what is he obedient? He's obedient all the way to the point of death. But it's not just any death. It's the death of the cross. And you just see this beautiful condescension. Now, this passage tells us, first of all, again, about Jesus is God. Uh, He does not become God. He doesn't adopt uh, either humanity or uh, or divinity. He's fully God who becomes a human. He takes upon himself a uh, human form. Uh, and so when God exalts him, he's merely, he's exalting him to his rightful place. But he does it because of this obedience. And there's, there's the point that Paul is, is making. So I've talked a lot. Let me stop there just to see if there's any any of that you want to you want to talk about specifically well there's we've got gotten gotten to the exaltation there's so much there's a couple things that jump in my mind uh i've uh, today um and really as a course of several conversations i've been having lately um the thought came into my mind and i tweeted it that that um when we see a lack of grace we also see a lack of peace and and as we look at christ i mean the the it's a different recording and a different passage, but in the Colossians passage, um, there's the discussion of him bringing peace and reconciliation with God uh, right, through right. his body and blood. And in this passage, you know, we see him, uh, this, this whole act of him uh, emptying himself and, and, you know, it's almost like rungs on a ladder as you see how far, right. how far is, is this humility going to go? Um, and we see that as this is all a grace that he takes on for us, uh, that he takes on this role as an act of God's grace to humanity. Um, and we see that. And because of this grace, peace is available and peace is there. Uh, and it, it's kind of, you know, when you pull that back into the top of the chapter, what Paul is calling them to do inside the church is to exhibit That's the grace exactly of Christ right. to bring out the peace within the body of Christ. And uh, that that whole picture and the the way that works together, um, you know, being a deacon in my church and, and preparing for ministry as a, as a pastor, you know, church unity is one of those things that is a major thing that we have to 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 work our minds through. Uh, and how am I as a leader supposed to do that? And this passage in my mind has always had 
a chord tied onto it to other passages. And the one that, that always strikes me the most is in John uh, at the Last Supper, where Christ is talking about what it means to be a leader and a servant. Uh, and, you know, right. the, to the point of washing the feet of the disciples. Those, these two passages for me are just uh, almost as if they're one, even though uh, we're out of two different Yeah, hands. that's right. Well, also, I, and I, if I'm, I'm, I'm not mistaken, it's Luke 12, where Jesus is talking about, uh, he's, I think he's talking about his first coming. And the you know the disciples and others are just sort of figuring out who he is. Right. And Jesus is telling them to be watching, to be watching for the Son of Man. And he said, when he comes, when the Son of Man comes, those servants whom he finds watching, he will gird himself and serve them. Right. Now, now what master does that? Later <laughs> in the book, uh, in chapter 17, Jesus even says, well, which one of you having servants comes in from the field and, I, and says, hey, you guys rest and, and eat supper. No, no, you say, dress yourself and serve me. Right. And then when you've served me, then you can eat. That's the way you do it. But in chapter 12, he says, I am, you know, I'm among you as one who serves. Right. And that he says that again at the Last Supper in Luke's account as well. Yeah. That, uh, you know, they, because they're at the Last Supper, they're arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus says, man, you're doing it like the Gentiles do it. They, they lord it over you with all that stuff. But yep. I'm among you as one who serves. And well, what a what a beautiful connection with here in Philippians 2. That, it is. Yeah, he takes upon himself the form of a servant, even to the point of death yep. and the death of the cross. And, and as, a, as, as a deacon, as I was uh, first stepping into the role of a deacon, uh, now it's been a little bit more than 10 years ago, uh, the idea of and, and meditating in my mind on what the role of a deacon is as a servant, who am I supposed to serve? I'm serving the body. Uh, and now, okay, now I filter it through all these passages. And what does that, what does that look like? You know, this is, this is, I wrote down in my notes, this is grace with feet. We can see what right. grace does and what service is. Uh, and, and it's something that we can draw from uh, to, to, to guide our steps. Uh, it's a passage, I think. Well, uh, Ryan. Yeah, go ahead. It's interesting that you would bring in uh, about being a deacon because, in Acts six, what what is the event that gives rise to really the creation of the office of the deacon? It's a lack There's of dispute. Yep. There's disunity. So what's the solution that the apostles have? Choose seven men from among you, uh, and let them serve this. So the, sometimes people say the number one job of the deacon is to serve. I'm going to disagree with that. Say no, the number one job of the deacon is to preserve unity. Yeah serving is the way it wasn't about the it wasn't about the widows being fed yep. it was about the church having unity that was the problem and uh and so i do think jesus is a marvelous example of through his his service he gives unity and that's what paul's after here and i think that's what the, the office of the deacon is after in Acts yeah. six yeah dude that's a very good point well taken thank you <laughs> I will uh, that that can be a little bit more meditation for me as I go through. There's a lot of things that that uh, as as the tentacles grow from one passage to the other in my mind that it just gives me things while I'm standing at recess watching little ones run around. Uh, it gives me really good meditation time to, to, to wrestle with those things. 
And uh, so there's something more to add to the fire. <laughs> you know, Ryan, that's the good thing about getting old. I turned uh, 60 this year. And the, the reality is I just make so many more connections. Right. As I read the word of God from literally decades of intensive study of the Bible, as you read it, man, the Holy Spirit is bringing all these other pieces together. And that, that has always happened. But the older you get, the more intimate with the word of God and, and with the Lord himself, I think you get the more reading scripture is, is an exercise in uh, connecting the many different parts and seeing the beautiful unity. Yeah. You know, it, it astounds me that people could deny the inspiration of scripture oh, because I... it is, it, it is all of one cloth. It's written across centuries. Yep. And yet, there's such a beautiful unity from all these different authors at different times, even in some ways, different subcultures for sure. Oh yeah. And yet it all just fits together so perfectly, so beautifully. What yep. a testimony to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I want to, uh, we can even take that as a, a kind of a turn to, to spin the question a little bit. Uh, as we look at what is uh, added to the picture, what what's missing if we don't have it, uh, and you've already touched on one error that that arises in this passage when people uh, take one particular sentence a wrong way within it. Uh, and that was with the uh, emptying. Uh, there's one earlier in the passage that catches my ear regularly because it's one that I find uh, is is something that when we're not careful with our language, it's easy to take this phrase, twist it just a little bit and end up in a really not safe place theologically and that's the form of god christ who exists in the form of god uh as that's that's the way it reads right here uh but it's easy to take that and now we come up with god has forms and then the next statement we start to sound like a modalist and uh we end up in some difficulty yeah what what are the guardrails that we can have on that particular little subsection of the passage well I would simply ask, well, how else could he say it to right. human beings who cannot conceive of a being outside of the time-space-mass continuum? We we can't get it. The same way he said, you know, I mean, we in, in essence, he's talking about Christ in his existence before the world was. There's another sense in which that doesn't even make sense. Mm -hmm. God is outside of time. I mean, time is his invention, his creation. And yet Jesus entered it. But how can how can God tell us? How can we possibly comprehend that He exists outside of time? I mean, the, throughout the Bible, you have these kind of anthropomorphisms, where the ear of the Lord is not heavy that you know He cannot hear; His arm is not shortened that He cannot save. But God's a spirit; He doesn't have an ear; He doesn't have an arm. Right. But it describes him in a way that we can comprehend and understand. You see the same thing with what are called anthropopathisms, the describing God having the emotions mm. of humanity. Mm -hmm. And so here, when it talks about being in the form of God, I just don't know how else he could say it that we would understand it any better. Yeah. And we dare not, we dare not put our constrictions on the word. We understand what Paul is referring to, what this hymn refers to, and uh, and we need to let it say what it says. But 
but we have to understand that it's 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 totally outside of time and space and mass. So God, and I mean he's he has a form, just like he has a an eternity past, but that doesn't even make sense. Right. But it's the only way that Herschel York can talk <laughs> about it. Yeah, and and that's one of the difficulties with it because it's such a complex. Uh, topic just the whole idea of god as he is uh, man that there's so much to to wrestle with and try to understand and the greatest minds that have walked the earth uh that are purely human minds are the ones who can't figure it out because there's you know there's no way for us to really get the depth of it um and that's one that you know existing in the form of god uh it, it takes a little bit for us to think through that and and this is one where I think it's really careful, really important for us to have those tentacles into other parts of Scripture because it helps shape and give balance to this particular way. It's you know, it's I think about the Song of Solomon and all the different analogies that he uses to describe his love in the song, and there's all these wonderful right. analogies that we have no clue why in the world did he use that? Why would you dare explain her teeth like that? Because in our ears. That sounds odd because it's not anything we're used to. But at that time, right. it was absolutely an appropriate thing to be said. That's right. Even in this passage where Paul says, if you have bowels yeah. and mercies, splunkna, splunkna, <laughs> what a word. That's that's the Greek word yep. for bowels. I, I can't imagine grabbing my wife to my arms, looking her deeply in, in the eyes and saying, my bowels are moved for you. <laughs> but... That's that's yeah. really the way it was described yeah. in the ancient world, it, yep. and we retain some of that language. We talk about in my gut, right, and v- visceral feelings, uh, and you know, uh, you also find like uh, God is the one who tries the kidneys, <laughs> yes. uh, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, I, the, the King's says word is reigns. You know, our word renology, uh, study of kidneys, comes from that, that old English word. So, you know, there are a lot of things like this that we just simply have uh, no other way to, to say it. And there, there, you're right, there is metaphors used throughout, but it always conveys a literal truth. Right. That's what you're asking. Well, how does, what is the literal truth that the author conveys, even when he uses figurative language or language that uh, is uh, anthropo, anthropomorphic, uh, you know, he's, he's still conveying a literal truth about God. Yeah. And I, and I think that's uh, an important thing is to take those analogies and test them where they fit and where they don't. Uh, when we're using our language, right. we know that every analogy we give, it, it can only stretch so far before, the, before it breaks. You know, it's, I, I like to think of it like a pizza dough. You know, when you stretch the analogy beyond where it can go, you're going to have a big hole in your analogy. It'll fall apart. And the same thing uh, in in any kind of any analogy or metaphor speaking, uh, it's only intended to do a certain thing. And when we use it in a way that it wasn't intended for, we put ourselves in a difficult spot. Uh, And that's this is one of those spots where I've seen it used uh, in a way that that leads folks down a really bad conception of who God is. That's right. You you can abuse this passage 
but you, you, the truth is you have to walk over a lot of other scripture to do it. Right. With the, the, the reformers principle of an analogy of faith, where you let scripture interpret scripture, you look at this and you go, well, it can't mean this because elsewhere the Bible says such and such. Right. And that, that's the way we approach it. So, you know, we, you know, we clearly have Jesus statement that I and the, my father are one. Yes. And the other passages that tell us that there, there cannot be a distinction in essence between them. John tells us God is a spirit. Mm-hmm. And Jesus, Jesus says God's a spirit. They that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Yeah. John says no man has seen God at any time nor can see him. So you take all these things together and you and, and you let each one put limitations on the other, what it can and cannot mean. And so God cannot have, this is not talking about a, a form, I think, but but his essence. That is not a physical form, but his essence outside of time, space, and matter. Yep. Uh, it's, those uh, particular heresies are hard to fight back. Uh, and you mentioned the other one with the, the emptying, yeah. where he empties himself. Uh, that that is that is another one that I uh, that we have to guard against because there are folks that will take that and run with it, isolate it, almost you know put it in its own little box and then elevate that higher. I'm wondering if in the passage are there any other things that you've seen uh, dangers that we have or that are available where we might hone in on one particular part of it and elevate that um, almost almost to. Um, distort the whole the whole picture because we make this one piece grotesque yeah well you you could do the same thing and and it uh, trust me if if you can abuse scripture someone has done it uh (laughs) and the same thing with his uh his statement of uh in verse seven of uh being uh, in the likeness of men there are those who go oh well he really wasn't a man. He was just like them. Uh, but uh, clearly, everywhere in Scripture, you have the, the the definition of Jesus. He's the man Christ Jesus. And even things he does after his resurrection to prove he's still human. He eats fish with them. The, 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 I, I call it the, the theology of a fish sandwich. Uh, you know, Jesus is showing who he is, he's still he's still human. He's a glorified man, yeah. but he he's still a man. I mean, you think about it. Whatever height Jesus was when he ascended to heaven, uh, say he's five ten, five eleven. Uh, you know, if he's a Middle Eastern Jew, he's probably not. You know, from the first century, he's probably not really tall. Yeah. That's how tall Jesus is. Yep. And he's ruling in heaven as a man that tall. Uh, and you know, we, we tend to, even in our thinking sometimes be, I, I don't overuse the word idolatrous, but definitely we misconceive of who Jesus is. He's a man and he's not just like us. And when it says he's like us, it means when I say, Hey, you and I are totally alike. Uh, okay. If I really mean that we're totally alike. Uh, and this is what Jesus Jesus was. He uh, he became a human being, and uh, the same thing they then used the word scheme uh, in and being in the likeness of men. 
and being found in the schemati, the scheme as a man, he humbled, he, he uh, humbled himself. So there are those who take that word schemati and they say, ah, well, that just means, again, that he was sort of like human beings, but he didn't really fully become man. That's a misreading of the Bible. And this hymn celebrated that Jesus was human. And to take it any other way is to really pervert its whole purpose. Yeah. And and it, humans are really good at doing that. We seem to find ways to yes. to take the wrong thing and amplify yeah. it the wrong way. Uh, and, and that's something that... Uh, I've not read as much church history as I have li- would like to have at this point. Uh, I'm remedying it slowly, but I can only read so much at a time. So uh, picking up on those. And, and uh, you, you really sort of hate, I mean, a lot of reading church history is reading errors that people made. Yes. And so there's a, sometimes it's hard to do, go through that. You just, you know, you're just reading so much that it's patently false and you disagree with, but yeah. It really is the story of church history, isn't it? All these heresies that arose and then corrections to that, and that's how the church has stayed faithful. Yeah. But uh, man, this passage has really had its share of those uh, of those uh, problems. Uh, of the passages we've studied so far, I think this one that has the most potholes in it that are dangerous for us uh, if we if we mistake it. Uh, there's there's a lot of of spots where we can either un, and there's some places where we can underplay this. I think the 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 section of of where Christ is becoming a man. Some folks want to underplay it because they don't want to allow Christ to not be God. They struggle with the idea right. of that, and they they make an opposite error of of others. It's hard to stick to the yellow line in in some cases, uh, and and not uh, end up jumping after one side or the other and this this passage brings that balance of that he is god and he is man uh, in such proximity that a lot of other passages don't have it that close together uh, kind of like what what they do with watching a, a a tornado with the new radar they have with the doppler where you can see the two winds that are right next to each other but here we see it so tightly yeah. formed uh that it it gives a really you were saying a clear picture we have that sharpness to it that many other passages yeah, don't a, give us. That's a great analogy itself right there. Well, thank you. I, some of those pop in my head. I think that's the, the part of the outgrowth of my mom's teaching style uh, and having been in her classroom. Uh, she teaches with word pictures constantly. And uh, that, that part of her teaching has worked itself into, my, into mine. Uh, a little bit of both of my parents show up in my classroom quite regularly. Uh, one other question I wanted to ask, and this is kind of the, the last question we're heading toward. Uh, and with this passage, um, there's it, it's such a deep passage. But the question is, uh, in what ways has this passage corrected you uh, over time? And also, uh, which ways has it driven your devotion to Christ and, and uh, brought more depth into your relationship with Christ over the years? You know, because I grew up in a very orthodox uh, Baptist home, my dad was a pastor, I've never struggled with the nature of Christ being fully human and fully divine. I've always believed that and accepted that. I, I think where I have struggled is uh, his humility, his meekness. You know, I've recently uh, read at least a, a part of Dane Orland's book, 
on uh, Gentle and Lowly. Yes. And he, one of the great points he makes is that when Jesus is given the opportunity to describe his own heart, what he says is, I am meek and lowly of heart. That's Jesus' self-description. And man, I think it's so easy for me to get on some trip of entitlement or power or rights. I mean, we live in a culture that just constantly urges us to assert our rights and stand up for our rights. And anytime we feel our rights being encroached on, man, we're, I am not going to take that. This is not the heart of Jesus at all. Jesus empties himself of those rights. Yeah. He lays them aside. And so this passage, probably more than any other, has really just been impressed in my heart and mind uh, that, you know what we want? We want the exaltation without the humiliation. Mm -hmm. We want the crown without the cross. But Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the suffering of the cross. Uh, and this is about him being obedient unto death. Because of that obedience, because of that, God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name. It's because of that obedience that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess to the glory of God that Jesus is Lord. So we, we, we have to be willing to follow him in his suffering, I mean, this is what, what Paul says elsewhere, you know, that it's through the fellowship of his sufferings. He says that in this book, as a matter of fact, that in uh, chapter 3, verse 10, that we, we uh, really get to know him. We know him in the fellowship of his sufferings. We're made like him, not in his exaltation. That'll come. We're made like him in his death. And man... You know, I think we want to go right to you know, verse chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. But there's one thing that even God can't do. He can't have a resurrection until first there's a death. Yeah. And, and we have to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings and be made like him in his death in order to experience the joy of the exaltation. And Christ models that perfectly for us. A passage that I think that, that takes that, that concept and boils it into one verse is Galatians 2.20, where we have to be crucified with Christ and die. And only then can we live with him. And uh, that, that idea of, right. of experiencing death to ourself, um, as, a, as a teacher, as being a band director, you know, it's it's a potential spot of glory within the school, right? It's a very visible public yeah. role. And uh, one of the attitudes that in my mind was uh, impressed on me, not necessarily verbally, but just as an example, as I've watched really good band directors, is they weren't at it for their name. They were at it to make the kids look good and to make their principal look good. If I do my job right, my principal will look like a fantastic principal without necessarily having to be a fantastic principal because I'm doing my part to, to, to help him look good. And it's not the same with, yeah. with, with uh, how we serve the Lord. That's not quite the same because God, we are not going to make God look any better than he already does. But my role in the church is to 
allow others to look better than me. And, you know, my job is to serve yeah, that's right. that person and to um, to see their needs as higher than my own. And I struggle with that. And, you know, with a 10 year old, we're struggling in teaching that at times that, you know, hey, this is a time where, yeah, you want this. You really wanted today. We had this happen this weekend. He wanted a, a particular day to go a certain way. He had like three things he wanted to do that day. Well, I had this. I had three things I wanted to do that day, and because of some things outside of all of our control, nobody got to do what they wanted to do that day. And we have a choice to how to respond to that. We can grouse about it all That's day, exactly right. Or we can submit to the the needs of the day and understand that God's providence takes over sometimes, and we have to accept that and move along with it. And yeah. it was a, it was an opportunity for us to sit and talk about that uh, this weekend. If I can, you know, you use the word respond there. And I think it's key. If I may, yeah. I'll share with you basically my outline of the book of Philippians. Now, don't let me make you panic. It doesn't take <laughs> long, but it's not, it's not a linear outline. Typically, you know, you say, okay, four chapters here in Philippians chapter one, is this two is this three is this four is this. But what I see is a circular outline of Philippians that it, it, it repeats itself over and over and over. And it's simply this point. Number one, that God has a purpose as a purpose for your life. It's a purpose for the Philippians point. Number two, that God chooses the means to accomplish that purpose. Point number three, you therefore have to respond correctly to the means God chooses to accomplish his purpose. Point number four, then, okay, then you get the results, you get the exaltation. And you see that all over the book. The chapter yeah. one, this is what Paul says in verse 12. I, I, so what's God's purpose for Paul's life? It's the furtherance of the gospel, right? What's the means God chose? He put him in prison. Yeah. God, I mean, who, what church growth expert would do that? <laughs> you don't take your point guy and put him in jail. Throw him in jail. But that's what God did with Paul. No. All right, so what was Paul's response? He said, okay. These aren't my bonds in Caesar. These are my bonds in Christ. So that my bonds in Christ are manifested in all the praetorium and in all of the places. And so there's, because he responded correctly, what's the result? Well, the praetorium comes to know Christ. We know from chapter four that many of them trusted Christ. He says, you know, the, the saints salute you, especially those of Caesar's household. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the, he got the results. God exalted him even through uh, his imprisonment. So chapter two is the perfect illustration of that with Jesus, right? What's God's purpose for Christ? It's the really the salvation of his people. What's the means God chooses that chooses to do that? It's the cross. How does Jesus respond to that? He empties himself. He humbles himself, becomes obedient, even to the point of death, even the death of the cross. What's the result? Wherefore God has highly exalted him, and giving him a name that's above every name. You can go through the entire book of Philippians, and you'll see that loop over and over and over. And I think your word respond is absolutely the right word. This is Paul telling the Philippians how to respond to their circumstances. And the only way you are sufficient for that is to have the mind of Christ in you so mm -hmm. that that equips you to do it. That is a great way to look at it. And I, as as I've been teaching children, especially as I've moved down into younger children, uh, the, the idea of how we respond to things has become more and more. But even as a musician, uh, so much of what we do is a response to what somebody else is doing within the, the, the framework of the music. 
and it uh, has always been something that has been taught to me almost almost innately that it's been taught to me that you know it's all life is just that is like an improv discussion going on and how you respond uh, time place audience purpose uh, is is one that hammered into yeah. my head over the years uh, and I've I've pieced those four words together in a row myself but those are the concepts that have been hammered into my mind where are you who's around what's going on and why are you doing what's the what do you want out of this what what is your behavior going to bring about uh, and and that's what my parents have taught me over time uh, and and I got to witness it and I'm going to take an opportunity to a little personal privilege if you don't mind uh, you had mentioned a, a, a few times in Absolutely. our private conversation my grandfather uh, and so for some background my grandfather uh, and my grandmother uh, lived in and around Lexington uh, pretty much my grandfather his whole life my grandmother from North Dakota somehow ended up uh, she actually I don't know if you know this story she followed her brother-in-law and her sister they moved to Wilmore uh, to go to Asbury and she came along with them and when it came time for them to go back to North Dakota she said no I'm staying here and uh, <laughs> she stayed in Lexington got a job cool. and uh, toward the end of World War Two she was working as a, she worked a little bit as a secretary. She worked with a phone company a little bit. And then uh, she was out in town one day and she uh, saw my granddad and they got started dating and decided quickly to go ahead and get married. And she sent a telegram home that said, I just got married. His name is Bill. And that was it. <laughs> so yeah. she she just cut ties with the house and and went on. It was a it's a fascinating story, and uh, yeah, and and I think of she, she the stories that her siblings tell of her were stories of this very strong willed, uh, assertive young lady, and the picture I grew up seeing from her was the exact opposite of that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. I mean, uh, I, when I heard that, yeah. that that was her reputation with her siblings, I'm like, this is my grandmother you're talking about. And it just yeah. didn't make sense. And then uh, along the, about the time I was in middle school, she had a stroke and could not do what she had done pretty much her adult life, which was take care of children. She was a uh, really good child care person. And she kept kids at the house as long as I know. Uh, that was what she basically did. And that started to become a struggle. And my grandfather, instead of taking the right that he had to expect her to do certain things, because she just couldn't, he totally changed the flow of the whole house. Uh, and, it, totally, yeah. and, and it was so amazing to watch. And that is a, a lesson in flesh and blood in my life that I've seen of somebody humbling himself. He went from being uh, a traveling salesman and doing all sorts of different sales jobs for different companies to being a home caregiver. Uh, and what I thought was somebody who was patient to a point, I got to see patients that extended way beyond anything I thought he, there was. He was, he was amazing. Uh, my distinct memories of your grandparents are precious to me. And your grandfather set a standard of being a godly husband that I can only aspire to match. And he counted it a joy 
to care for your grandmother. And he did that a lot of years. It, it wasn't a it brief was, time. No, it was, it was, it was uh, a long he, time. He didn't die until I was in college. Uh, and she had died. Um, she died when my wife and I met. I, it was after, it was when I was here already at, at North Spencer teaching that he died. Because uh, my, my wife got to meet him, meet her. Uh, this was uh, before she died. So Jennifer, uh, so that would have been while we were still in college that, that uh, she was, especially at that point, that was after her second stroke. And she had really slowed down at that point. And there were a lot of things. She couldn't see well, uh, couldn't move well. And it was, it was difficult. Yeah. I, I would, uh, after I left Lexington to go to Southern in 97, uh, I, you know, I remember, I think I saw them a few, few times after that, but yeah. uh, maybe at my, at some of my family's funerals and things, yeah. uh, they, they would come. Uh, but I, I just loved them. They were elegant people. Yes. Yeah, I mean, every, every week at church, your grandfather, first of all, I think we all were tied. Yeah. Them, but, you know, he, he always wore a certain tie and she just looked lovely. And they, the way the two of them smiled at each other yes, was just beautiful to see. They, they loved each other. Uh, we used and, to go uh, there at, uh, uh, on circle four, just up toward Richmond road. There was a McDonald's used to be somewhere between Richmond and Winchester road. Mm-hmm. Uh, used to be an old McDonald's yeah. there and we would go there all the time. And I remember him, yeah. Uh, as she would get older, he would get her coffee and bring it to her and make it for her uh, and set it up just the way she wanted. And and just watching the care with which he he went about that um, and yeah. and the idea of putting someone else first uh, and the 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 commitment of, well, I made this covenant with you that I will do this. And, yeah. and it, 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 the in sickness and health right. was ingrained in my mind from watching that. And uh, it's been something that I can draw on. Uh, and I hope, you know, for those of you that are listening, I hope there's somebody that you have seen that gives of themselves. Uh, and if you haven't, this is an opportunity that you have for the people around you to embody and to give a picture of what Christ did for us. And it's a way of, of showing the gospel uh, in a way that that causes people to ask you what's going on, uh, and it, it's a, a thing that for those who are walking along with you, it's an opportunity for you to give them a picture of what has been done for you in your life. Uh, you know, I think of of several of my students who had children young, uh, right out of high school or in high school, even some of them, and the differences between them and how they arranged their life after the child was born some who just totally gave up everything to pour into the child and some of them who almost didn't want to give up anything at all for their child right and uh, the differences that we see there parenting is one of those things where as we give of ourselves we show that somebody else is more important to us and it's uh, there are ways that we can show that and point to scripture to say okay why are you why do you do that? Well, I do that because this is what Christ did for me. And this is a picture I've seen that in others uh, that, that this is what love looks like. And, you know, think about the first Corinthians passage. What does love do? It, it doesn't seek itself. It seeks out the right. good of the other. That's the definition of love that we have right here. That picture in 11 verses. Do you want to show love? Be like Christ. 
what does love look like in first Corinthians? Now apply that back to here. Does that not exactly look the same? And uh, it's, it's a wonderful example when you can see somebody do it well. Um, and if you see someone do it well in your church, uh, in your family, take the time to say, to, to recognize that with them, uh, whether it's in public or That's private. right. Uh, Absolutely. Because they, you know, you reproduce what you honor. Yeah. And the more you honor those who serve like Christ, the more people will be doing it. It's yep. just, uh, it's a principle of leadership. It is absolutely. And it's one that uh, we could all use a little bit more of. There's a lot of corners of the church today that uh, there is a lack of peace. And uh, it's not necessarily personal peace. It's not necessarily uh, peace between them and God, but there's a lack of peace within the body. Uh, and and I, I think a lot of that is our sanctification working itself out. Uh, but at the same time, uh, an opportunity for us to, to bring about grace. So, uh, well, I want to say thank you. It is, it is hitting that edge of time. I know we're at about 55 minutes or so on the recording and, uh, want to say thank you very much for coming on and being with us today. Uh, I have uh, enjoyed this so much and uh, appreciate you taking the time to join us today. And it's been my delight. Uh, I really, first of all, love talking about the word. Yep. And secondly, it's because of my dear fond memories of your grandparents. It's a, it's a special delight to get to talk to you, Ryan. Thank you so much. It has been wonderful. Thank you. Uh, for those of you listening, thank you for joining us. We want to say uh, to, to, to point you to Christ and say to look to him and see what he's done for you. And uh, until next time, thanks for listening. We'll see you later. Bye. That wraps up this episode of Simmering Thoughts. Please like and share our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher. We happen to be on just about all the major ones. And you can also go to our social media outlets on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and a few others. Just search up Simmering Thoughts. And thank you for listening to Simmering Thoughts, where we serve up slow-cooked thinking on Christian life and theology.